Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to today's edition of the broadcast. I'm Dr. David DeRose. I'm talking with you today about some really exciting things that I've had the privilege to be a part of. It includes, well, actually it's focused on the American Public Health Association's annual meeting and expo that took place between the dates of October 24 and 28. And it was the first time that the American Public Health Association meetings were ever held exclusively in a virtual environment. Now, that comes as no surprise, probably to just about everyone listening to the show today, because we are living with a lot of different realities as we continue to be dealing with the pandemic of COVID-19. But uh, a lot of folks have heard me speak with guests who I met at the American Public Health Association meetings. It is one of those venues that I typically attend every year, and one of the reasons I attend is especially to meet with indigenous researchers. They have a caucus at the American Public Health Association. That means a special group uh, that is devoted to Native American, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian health issues. I regularly attend a number of those meetings each year, and I had the privilege of doing so again in 2020 in the virtual environment. So one of the reasons I'm there is to meet people doing exciting things with indigenous populations. But another reason for attending the American Public Health Association meetings is to meet other excellent radio guests who are not dealing exclusively with indigenous health issues. And so from time to time, we've featured people on the program speaking about environmental health or nutritional issues, other topics, infectious diseases, who I have rubbed shoulders with in this very important public health meeting venue. So one of the big questions coming into APHA 2020 was, how many people will come to a virtual meeting? I'll be honest with you. My initial thinking was, I was not going to be going. That all changed when we received word that one of our papers had been selected for presentation at the meetings. And I say one of our papers. Some of you who are regular listeners to this broadcast realize that early in 2020, my wife, Dr. Sonia DeRose, and I had the privilege of working with indigenous community health workers on the island of Molokai, there in the Hawaiian Islands. We did some exciting things helping Native people on that island, on Molokai, to reconnect with traditional values, to improve their health outlook. And we actually demonstrated some pretty exciting things about improvements in various blood measurements. And let me just tell you, I'm hoping to have Mercy Ritty back on the show to share the very thing that she presented at the American Public Health Association meeting. So Mercy made that presentation, even though I had the privilege of working on it together with her. And we're hoping to have Mercy behind the microphone, so to speak, on a future edition of this show. By the way, 
in this virtual setting. So I'm there because I'm supporting Mercy, helped with the research. But we had some great opportunities to interface with people, met a number of great guests, some of whom have already agreed to do interviews on the broadcast that you are listening to right now. Not this very segment, not this very show, but future editions. So I've said to myself, well, wouldn't it be interesting to give my listeners, a flavor for what a public health meeting is like. What could you expect there? To give you a little overview and actually some really practical things that I learned about while I was at APHA 2020. Not in San Francisco, California, where it was originally scheduled to be, but I was in my own home virtually taking in the meetings. So what does a public health meeting look like? Well, first of all, typically the APHA meetings, which are actually said to be the largest gathering of public health and preventive medicine professionals in the world. Whether that's true, I've heard it more than once. They had some 9,000 individuals who joined the virtual meetings, and that is par, I think, for many of the in-person meetings. I've heard figures 10,000, 12,000 in the past. But what does it look like? What happens at a typical APHA meeting? So let me walk you through my own experience. I'm going to especially focus on at least the first day. We'll see how far along we get through the multi-day meetings. The meetings actually started on a Saturday with special learning institutes. I did not take place in that portion of the meetings. Sunday, they continued these special institutes where health professionals can get continuing education, continuing medical education, the case of physicians, and actually giving them focused training in extended courses. So a course might go for an hour and a half, three hours, a whole day. I've uh, taken one of those courses in the past. It was very good. But this year, I took in a course on Sunday that was a new course to me. I'd never heard of it before. And I'm telling you about it on the show because this might be something you would want to feature in a tribal venue. It is something that would be of value, I believe, to tribal health workers, to lay people in your community. It is a training program put on by the Epilepsy Foundation. That's right, the Epilepsy Foundation. They have put together a program that they call Seizure Recognition and First Aid Certification. Seizure Recognition and First Aid Certification. You can learn all about it by going to epilepsy.com. So simply the word epilepsy, E-P-I-L-E-P-S-Y.com. And if you want to go directly to this training, you'd put a slash and then one word, first aid. Yeah, just make it all one word, first aid. So epilepsy.com slash first aid. What you'll find there is that the month of November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. And they are offering virtual trainings at a variety of times where you could actually be trained. You, other members in your community, other members on your tribal council, your tribal health center. If you're not Native and you're tuning into the show and you say, wow, I'd like to learn how to recognize a seizure, videos, different types of seizures, explanations, Seizure Recognition and First Aid Certification. I actually went through that class. And let me give you some of the high points. This will not substitute for actually attending the class, of course, because the class went, I want to say, 
for maybe an hour and a half, two hours, if I were to guess. It was pretty comprehensive as far as uh, giving a good overview and practical things that you could do if someone's having a seizure. So let me give you some facts and statistics, because some of you right now are saying, well, why would we need to do something like this? This is a pretty rare thing. Actually, the lifetime risk of having a seizure is 1 in 10. In other words, for every 10 people listening to this show, one of them, if they've not had a, a seizure in the past, they're destined to have one in the future. Lifetime risk, having a seizure, 1 in 10. Of course, that's statistically. There may be 10 people listening, of course. You may be sitting in a room, 10 of you listening to the show. Uh, It's not perhaps the normal scenario to listen to radio, but 1 in 10, that's your lifetime risk. Here's another statistic. 1 in 26 people in the United States will be diagnosed with epilepsy at some time in their life. Now, you might be scratching your head. You're saying, wait, Lifetime risk of a seizure, 1 in 10, but diagnosis of epilepsy, only 1 in 26. How does that all fit together? Well, it fits together because just having a seizure does not mean that you have epilepsy. We'll explain that a little bit more as we go through the portion of today's show that's devoted to epilepsy. Looked at another way, it's this. Over 3 million people right now in the United States of America are currently affected with epilepsy. Now, if a person does have a seizure, most lay people, I think, might err on the side of saying this automatically is a medical emergency. That is not true. Actually, most seizures are not medical emergencies And what is really surprising to many people is a person having a seizure may actually be aware or unaware that they're having a seizure. So there are some seizures that are so subtle that even the person having the seizure may be oblivious to the fact that they're having a seizure. On the other hand, some seizures can be life-threatening. They can cause death through an accident, drowning, for example, The risk of suicide is increased in individuals with seizure disorders. Now, let's just give a little bit of definition in terms of epilepsy and seizures. So first point, really important stuff, and I really heartily recommend this this class, Seizure Recognition and First Aid Certification from the Epilepsy Foundation. But let me give you a little bit more in terms now of definitions. So seizures. They're actually caused by abnormal electrical activity in your brain. This can occur with acute illness. It can occur with certain brain injuries. Some of the settings in which a seizure could occur, let me give you an example. One is a low sodium level. Classic case, okay? Just a practical scenario for you. Let's say you're out working in the heat. And you've heard it's important to drink water. By the way, that is true. But you're out working very vigorously. You're, it's really hot out. You're going through a lot of water, and you're just drinking plain water. When you're having significant sweat loss, and you're drinking just plain water, and you're drinking quite a bit of it, you are at risk for something called hyponatremia. That means an abnormally low sodium level in your blood. This is very dangerous, it can be life-threatening, and among other things, it can cause seizures. So a low sodium level, for example, if you are overhydrating or optimally hydrating but not keeping up with your sodium needs, 
you could get into a situation where the blood sodium level drops. We call that hyponatremia, and that can trigger a seizure. We would not call that epilepsy. So we only call it epilepsy if you don't have seizures that are being caused by something transient, okay, that heals. So an acute illness, you address the low sodium level, no more seizures. Your child may have had a febrile seizure. Very common in children, if they have a high fever, they can have a seizure. There could be a brain injury. Seizure, following the brain injury, brain heals, no more seizures, okay? So epilepsy, we use that term when a person has unprovoked recurrent seizures. So no explanation for it, not a recent injury, no metabolic derangement, they're not having a fever, etc., etc. They haven't just been drinking alcohol and then stopped. There's something called an alcohol withdrawal seizure. So a person with unprovoked recurrent seizures. Now, You may have heard people refer to epilepsy as a seizure disorder. I may even, in the course of this show, use that very same terminology. It was interesting. The folks from the Epilepsy Foundation shared with us some very interesting insights. What they said is a lot of people, including health professionals, have thought that the term epilepsy was uh, stigmatizing, was something that made people feel uncomfortable. So they've actually done research studies looking at the general population, seeing whether epilepsy carries some kind of a negative connotation, and their conclusion is it does not. So what the recommendation of the Epilepsy Foundation is, is to use the term epilepsy for a person who's having unprovoked recurrent seizures. Well, we've looked at some definitions, some overview of seizure disorders, or preferably epilepsy, and we're going to talk about some of the first aid insights that I think you'll find very interesting, very compelling. So we're going to come to that in our next segment, but before we step away, I want to let you know we're not just talking about epilepsy and seizures on this program. I'm giving you a broad exposure to some of the things I experienced at the American Public Health Association meetings. Stay tuned. A lot more very practical stuff from APHA 2020. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be right back after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. For 13 and one half years, I was the victim of severe child abuse. I was being beaten, cursed, and deprived of any kind of love and care. It was a big secret. Children are born to be loved, not to be abused. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. 
That's overcomingabuse.org. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Andrew Saul, Commissioner of Social Security. I'm here to warn you about telephone scammers pretending to be government employees. Some of these scammers may say threatening things like you will be arrested if you don't make payments or provide personal information. Do not fall for these tricks. These calls are not from us. Real Social Security employees will never threaten you for information or money. If you receive a call like this, hang up. Never give the caller your personal information, like your Social Security number or bank account, or send money in any form, cash, gift cards, wire transfers, or prepaid debit cards. Report the call to our law enforcement arm, the Office of the Inspector General, at oig.ssa.gov. Share this information with your friends and family. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You're back with Dr. David DeRose. We are speaking about insights from the American Public Health Association's annual meeting in 2020. It took place at the end of October. I'm recording this show just a short while after having attended those meetings. I'm giving you a feel for what it's like to attend a public health meeting. I've been explaining that uh, traditionally the American Public Health Association meeting has some pre-conference meetings, some intensive sessions where they give comprehensive training on different topics. This year, for the first time, at least to my knowledge, they were offering something that was put on by the Epilepsy Foundation, a class And you can take the class yourself, my understanding is, for no charge. Seizure recognition and first aid certification. You can learn all about it at epilepsy.com slash first aid. Offering programs throughout the month of November and presumably beyond. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. We talked about just how prevalent seizures were as many as 1 in 10 people having them throughout the course of their lifespan. Something like 1 in 26 individuals have epilepsy, over 3 million people in the U.S. I explained to you that the definition or the term epilepsy is used if a person has unprovoked recurrent seizures. Now what we want to do is talk a little bit about what seizures look like. And seizures can manifest in different ways. I was just speaking with someone not all that long ago. Some of you are aware from previous broadcasts that lately I have been confining my clinical medicine to exclusively doing telemedicine. Of course, there's a huge demand for telemedicine today with concerns of transmission of COVID-19 in office settings and crowded waiting rooms. 
So a lot of people opting for telemedicine. So I've been continuing to work in a clinic environment. Now it's virtual, where I've worked for a number of years, working with some of the same patients that I was seeing physically in the past, now dealing with them by phone, telemedicine. Why I mention that is uh, in a recent visit, I was talking with an individual, and the subject came up about the possibility of seizures. And we were talking about someone who had not had a diagnosis of seizures, but we were trying to sort through, based on the history, whether this sounded like a real seizure or not. Was it a seizure or was it something else? In the particular scenario, I'll just tell you, of course, changing some of the details to protect the individual. Very common scenario, though. Person working out in the heat comes in, has to use the uh, the restroom, and as they're sitting on the commode, they passed out. The person was wondering, had they had a seizure? Well, I told the individual, I said, you know, odds are an episode like this, this is not a seizure. It's something that we call a vasovagal reaction. It's uh, more common if you actually are using the uh, the restroom, having digestive issues. Sometimes that can provoke it, but it has to do with actually the blood not getting up to the brain in adequate amounts, being diverted, if you will, away from the brain. Maybe that's a better way. The vagus nerve is responsible for slowing heart rate, among other things. And if you decrease blood flow to the brain, oxygen level can decrease and you can pass out. And that's the most likely occurrence that I see when someone otherwise is fine. They've never had a seizure disorder before, never had a diagnosis of epilepsy, and they have a spell where they passed out, especially if they've been overheated, if they're sick, if they have a gastrointestinal illness. So this would not be a seizure, not typically. Now, seizures can look actually surprisingly different. As I mentioned, in this training course that I took, put on by the Epilepsy Foundation, they showed videos of different individuals having seizures, and some of those seizures do not affect the whole brain. Other seizures affect the entire brain. Some seizures affect motor function. Others don't. As an example, they showed us footage of someone having a seizure. The only evidence they were having a seizure is they were staring blankly into space. Other people, kind of a similar uh, response. They're staring blankly, but also maybe they're smacking their lips. Maybe they're doing some movements of their hands that don't look particularly purposeful. These can all be seizures. So it's not necessarily someone falling to the ground and jerking violently, although a seizure can manifest that way as well. So very important, aware of what seizures can look like. If you want to administer seizure first aid, you have to first have a knowledge of how a seizure may present. And then the focus of the class, the first aid portion, was on three strategies. And I think this is pertinent for for everyone to hear, and this is one of the reasons I'm featuring it on today's broadcast. Because a lot of folks, they really get scared when they hear of a person having a seizure, or they've seen maybe... uh, videos, maybe a movie, a film, they say, oh, if someone has a seizure, you got to cram something in their mouth so they don't swallow their tongue. 
Well, the organizers of the course pointed out that uh, there is no reason to put anything in the person's mouth. This is actually unwise, could damage their teeth, they could swallow something. What you want to do is actually gently and safely get them onto their side. This is one of the three S's. They're They're the basics of seizure first aid. But the first one, before you even think about moving them onto their side, if they're laying on the ground, is to stay with them. So the first S is for stay. And this is so significant because often if you're alone with someone and they have a seizure, your first impulse might be to run and get help. But no, this person needs you to stay by. Now, there's several reasons why. One, you stay by to actually time and observe the seizure. Now, this may sound somewhat lacking compassion. Think about it. It almost seems like one of these individuals who pull out their their smartphone and start filming something where someone is in some adverse situation. Well, I'm not saying that that's wrong to do. It may not be a bad idea to actually film it if you can do it and still do the other tasks that are important to accomplish. Because one of the reasons you're staying by is to keep the person safe. That's the second S. So, for example, if it looks like the person you know, has a jerk and they're starting to, to stagger, or maybe it looks like they're going to fall, of course, try to help them, lay them gently down. Maybe they're near a sofa or a bed, depending on what room they are and if they're in a home. Maybe if you're on public transportation, you're going to lay them on a bus seat or a train seat, plane seat. If that's not possible, maybe you're going to lay them in the aisle. You're going to want to keep that person safe. You could be on a train platform. You don't want them falling into the path of an oncoming train, things like that, keeping the person safe, then laying them on their side. So if they're aware during the seizure, you know, they may be aware of what's going on. Try to explain to them what you're doing. You can always err on the side of explaining things, say, I'm just going to gently help you get on your side, even if you think they're not aware. That's always a good thing to do. Say, I'm going to touch you on your back or on your shoulder and move you onto your side. This is always a prudent strategy. The other thing you're doing, and the reason I mentioned timing, is you've got your stopwatch or you're looking at your watch or your smartphone because concern really increases if the seizure lasts for longer than five minutes. So if you have not already notified 911, you don't necessarily need to do that, especially if you're aware that this person has a seizure disorder already and you know what it, what it looks like and they're having a typical seizure. You don't need to call 911. If you have any question, of course, uh, activate emergency medical services. But five minutes, if it goes that long and you have not already gotten formal help, that would be an appropriate time to reach out. So, of course, there's a whole lot more to the class than I just gave you an overview for. But if you do, go through this class offered by the Epilepsy Foundation. And again, you can learn about it at epilepsy.com. They will give you a certificate. They gave me one. And it said that I had successfully completed the requirements for seizure recognition and first aid certification. They also gave me a wallet card with my very name on it, David D. Rose. And again, epilepsy.com slash first aid. That is where you can learn more about the course. Well, that 
is an example of what happens early on in the American Public Health Association meetings. And from there, from the first two days where they offer these intensive learning institutes, they then move in to their opening general session. In 2020, this took place on Sunday. And that opening general session began with Dr. Lisa Carlson. Lisa Carlson, I may have just given her an honorary doctorate, but she was the outgoing president of the American Public Health Association, a woman who is just passionate about the value of outdoor spaces and what it can do for public health. I'm going to tell you some of Lisa's salient insights in our next segment, something that can make a difference as far as your health and the health of those you love. We'll talk more about some really exciting sessions that I attended and maybe even introduce some individuals who we will have as guests in their own right on future editions of the show. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We'll be back up with more right after this. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. The most negative thinking in my childhood was the things said to me. I felt like I was a bag of garbage waiting to go to the dump. Please, moms and dads, put a watch on your mouth as you relate to your children. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Papa, why can't we telegraph while riding a horse? Son, there ain't no one to blame but Jeffro. He was riding old Betsy the Stallion, tip-tapping away at his telegraph, when blam! Ran right into the side of the saloon. Well, if Jeffro can't do it, neither should you. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Dr. Nia Heard-Garris with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. Every year, hundreds of teens drown. If your teen hasn't learned to swim yet, it's never too late. Even if your teen is a strong swimmer, make sure to supervise kids of any age. No one should swim alone. Teach them to enter the water feet first, wear life jackets on a boat, and never use alcohol or drugs on the water. Drowning is preventable. For more, visit HealthyChildren.org. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for youth. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs and dangerous things like metals into your body. And nicotine, which can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping. Because when you talk, they hear you. Learn more at underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. 
Dr. David DeRose back with you for the second half of today's edition of the broadcast. I am giving you an exposure to what it would be like to attend a meeting of the American Public Health Association. Some of you tuning in today, no doubt, have been to APHA meetings, and hopefully it's bringing back good memories of past attendance. This year was different. It was a virtual meeting. So we were getting to see people in their own environments, in their own offices, in their own settings. That was uh, actually kind of an interesting part of the process. Some of you have appreciated that small side benefit of a pandemic that has really been uh, quite cruel to the entire population. Having said that, I was telling you that after going through one of the intensive programs that was offered at the APHA annual meeting in 2020 that was dealing with epilepsy. And by the way, if you didn't catch the first two segments, the main thing I spoke about was a training program put out by the Epilepsy Foundation that actually gives people training in seizure recognition and first aid for those seizures. Epilepsy.com slash first aid gives you all the information you will need. But what happens in a APHA annual meeting is after having these more intensive sessions, learning institutes, if you will, they have an opening general session. This took place on Sunday, last Sunday in October, and one of the people that was featured was the outgoing president of the American Public Health Association, Lisa Carlson. I really appreciated something that I heard Lisa talk about in more than one setting during the meetings, and that is the value of getting outdoors in nature. This is really interesting stuff. When Dr. Greg Steinke, Trudy Lee, and I wrote our book, 30 Days to Natural Blood Pressure Control, we included some of the data speaking about the benefit of getting outdoors in nature. Some of you may have heard discussions talking about the value of outdoor activity when it comes to the immune system. One of the people that has popularized this, at least in the circles that I'm in of late, is Dr. Roger Schwelt. Dr. Schwelt uh, runs a website called MedCram, and he's uh, reviewed some of the literature showing how getting out in nature, getting out among the trees, actually has immune enhancing benefits. Well, Lisa Carlson was speaking about some of the benefits of outdoor activity. And what she recommended is that every person aim for 120 minutes per week, two hours per week of getting out into nature. And as she was talking about the far-reaching public health benefits of being closer to nature, one of the things she highlighted, especially as uh, you hear growing concerns about temperature stress, heat stress, areas with more trees typically have cooler temperatures in the summer, and this, of course, can decrease the risk of heat stress on a population. What was interesting about Lisa Carlson's remarks is that We've been speaking a lot in public health circles, and it's become more apparent that we don't have an equal playing field when it comes to access to simple natural therapies even. And Lisa was sharing how not everyone has equal access to nature. If you're in a big urban area, 
if you're in an area where it's not particularly safe to walk maybe several blocks to get to an area that has some some green space, if you will, in an area with trees. This has really been highlighted with the uh, pandemic and some of the lockdowns and things where some individuals may have had access and there may have been allowance in their communities, as it was the case in many places, for them to go out into natural settings. But for other people in the heart of urban areas, they were basically locked in their homes. And getting out in nature has health-giving benefits, stress-relieving benefits. You can make vitamin D in the sunlight, a whole list of things. And so I really appreciated the past uh, president's remarks, especially highlighting past president now, because we have a new president for the American Public Health Association, but uh, appreciated Lisa Carlson bringing attention to that important public health resource. After those remarks, we heard from Brian Stevenson. Brian Stevenson is a lawyer. He's the founder and the executive director of a group called Equal Justice Initiative. And I'll tell you, it was a uh, as a powerful presentation that Brian gave, speaking about how uneven the playing field is when it comes to basic justice, the legal system. He shared in his work as a lawyer representing often underprivileged minority individuals, shared a particularly tragic story of uh, of a young man who he ended up advocating for and helping. But the point is, as we look at public health, it's not just the things you think of as a layperson or even as a health professional. Many of us, we think, oh, yeah, you know, you got to have access to good medical services. Well, sure, that's true. You have to have things like structured programs for uh, hygiene, good water supply, clean air. Yes, environmental health, important in the whole public health arena, in fact. If you look historically, among the very most important things in the public health arena, if not the most important, depending on who you speak with, are these public health things, uh, the environmental health things, sanitation, clean air, clean water. But the dialogue has been expanding as we're speaking about, in public health circles, what we call social determinants of health. And you'll hear Uh, We're planning on a a future program. One of the speakers that I heard, a Dr. Crosby from the University of Nevada, uh, has agreed actually to to join me for a future segment of our show, a future program. Dr. Crosby is looking at commercial determinants of health. In other words, there are things in our environment, the businesses, the built spaces, the environment, the access to nature, all of these things. The justice system, we've been hearing a lot of concerns about that. So the whole point is simply this. There's a lot of things that affect health. And if we're really interested in public health, if you're really interested in the health of your people, your tribe, your community, you are going to take a broader view of public health. And by the way, this is an excellent time to say the American Public Health Association is a place where if you have an interest in public health, I joined the uh, the group before I had my master's in public health. I was an MPH student, as I recall, when I joined the American Public Health Association for the first time. So if you want to really have an opportunity to rub shoulders with some of the leading minds in public health throughout the world, uh, APHA is a great environment, and we had the privilege of doing that virtually 
in October of 2020. Let me segue now to another presentation that I found especially interesting. And this one was dealing, well, the title was The Power of Youth Voice. The Power of Youth Voice. This presentation was put together by individuals, including those who are with the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health of the United States, especially the Office of Population Affairs. And these individuals were basically saying, hey, if we're going to look at optimizing the health of communities, we need to bring youth and young adults into the public health dialogue. And they really had a lot of fascinating insights, but what was especially engaging about their presentation was they actually brought footage with the permission of uh, of young people. And as I recall, these individuals were between the ages of 13 and 19, eight uh, teenagers from diverse genders and ethnicities that were interacting virtually They were from either Texas or Georgia. Those happened to be the two locations where they apparently had recruited these students. At least one I know is a college student. Most, I think, were high school students. But they actually had these young people interacting on different health topics. And then they told us, as public health professionals, how we could tap into the power of young people in our communities And really the focus, like I said, was bringing youth to the table, regardless of their social status, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, bringing folks together as you're developing programs for your community, bringing young people together. And what I found to be especially, especially encouraging is it wasn't just a show and tell, if you will, it was a structured program where they were telling us as health professionals and you maybe as a tribal health leader, maybe a tribal council member, maybe you run a industry in conjunction with your tribe, maybe you're just someone in your community who's interested in mobilizing people for better public health outcomes. They've put together something called the Listen Up Toolkit, the Listen Up Toolkit. And you can find it at the Office of Population Affairs on the hhs.gov website. So hhs.gov, the Office of Population Affairs. If you look under areas like adolescent health, you'll find the Youth Listening Session Toolkit. There's a, a, a manual that you can download, a PDF manual that tells you how you can organize one of these youth dialogue sessions in your community. And what was so interesting is a lot of times people think that younger people are not engaged. They're only concerned about themselves and their interests. I was very impressed with the eight young people that they had. They were very much concerned on how their behaviors impacted other people. They were very much concerned about giving back to their communities. And The youth themselves, they told us that they had a number of concerns when it came to public health. And let me just walk you through them and see if any of these resonate with you. One, they said they had a desire for adults to care about what they know and to care about how they feel. 
and not just minimize their observations, not just minimize their emotions. Why? Because they're young. And so this was interesting to me because I heard young people talking about public health concerns. Yes, there was a facilitator, but that facilitator was helping to draw the young people out. What were their concerns about the current pandemic? What are their concerns about things happening around them? How do you see your future? How do you see making a difference? What could youth do when it comes to X, Y, or Z problems or concerns? So, first message from this session, insights from youth. They want to be included around the table. And so I want to encourage you, as you're planning things throughout Indian country, as you're planning things and you represent maybe a business, maybe you represent a faith community, get a diverse representation of ages as well as every other demographic, and you will get some of the most powerful insights into how you can have more effective programs, more effective outreach, in your community. We're going to come back with more insights from youth and other practical lessons in our final segment, all drawn from the American Public Health Association's annual meeting in 2020. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We will be back with our final segment right after this. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. The following is a public service announcement for victims of child abuse. If child abuse victims don't get counseling or help, they so often become abusers themselves. The victim doesn't make the decisions... They just take the orders. I got help, and so can you. If you've experienced child abuse, find someone to talk to, someone you can trust and share your hurt and disappointments. Go to overcomingabuse.org. That's overcomingabuse.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Shelley Flace with today's tip for kids from the American Academy of Pediatrics. If you own firearms, it's your responsibility to make sure they're always stored safely. Hiding them in a closet or drawer is not enough. Kids know where they are. Research shows the risk of injury and death is lower if guns are stored unloaded and locked up with the ammunition locked in a separate place. This is important when children are young as well as when they grow into teenagers. For more, talk with your pediatrician or visit HealthyChildren.org. So I wanted to talk with you and your mom today, Lily, because some people at school have noticed changes going on with you, and we're concerned. Like what? Who? Some of your friends, teachers, sounds like you've lost interest in a lot of things lately. You're hanging with new friends. So? So, individually, maybe those things are no big deal. But taken together, and then the incident the other day, you were with Derek when he was caught selling marijuana. Yeah, he was selling it. Honey, we know. But we care about you and and want to know what's going on. That's right. We just want to understand better and see how we might help. And if weed is a part of it, We just want to make sure you understand the negative consequences for someone your age. The physical and mental health effects, poor decision-making, and the confusing legal aspects these days. So what do you say? Can we talk? For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaska Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose for our final segment of today's edition of the broadcast. I've been speaking with you about insights from the American Public Health Association's 2020 annual meeting, the first time that annual meeting has ever taken place in an exclusively virtual environment. I've been walking you through what happens if you were to be walking down the halls of a actual, physical APHA meeting, as I have many, many years. This year, though, all virtual, learning institutes the first couple days, then an opening general session, and I'm sharing with you another presentation that took place on the first day of the program, which was a Sunday, the first full day of actually the scientific sessions and other programming. There's poster sessions typically that were now all short videos, but just a very interesting environment. Anyway, I've been telling you about a project called Listen Up. Harnessing the Power of Youth Voice to Make Change. One of the presenters was someone by the name of Elizabeth Finnegan LaFerrere. I believe I'm pronouncing the name correctly. If not, Elizabeth, if you listen to this program, please accept my apologies. Anyway, Elizabeth, uh, with the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, was sharing insights as well as a number of her colleagues as to how we can more effectively utilize youth around our public health discussions. And so I've been sharing with you some insights from youth. The first one is include them. Include them. Value what they know. Value how they feel. Don't minimize their observations or emotions. A second insight from youth is the youth desire to have safe spaces where they can honestly engage in important conversations. And, you know, a lot of times if someone's opinion is not valued, if someone is marginalized, it is not safe to share their opinion. Like, why are you speaking up? This is for the professionals to discuss. That would not be a safe space. You want to provide places where adolescents, young adults, can be equal participants as far as sharing ideas opening up options for things that you can do in the public health arena. So provide safe spaces. It could be a formal group with a facilitator, as was done in this series. The Listen Up manual, the free manual that you can get from Health and Human Services, the Office of the Assistant Secretary for Health, you can get this manual and it will actually share with you how you can have these listening sessions for youth. This resource is called the Youth Listening Session Toolkit. So one other insight from young people, and that is young people see the connection between their own health and the health of their communities. Now, a lot of people would say, well, that's pretty obvious, but the whole point is many times folks that are younger are accused of not having a big picture, of only being focused on their own needs And as a group of eight folks was included between the ages of 13 and 19, we actually had an opportunity to listen to some of the recorded dialogue. I was just very impressed, as were the other listeners, 
judging by their comments, both uh, in chat rooms as well as verbal comments, about how these young people really were not just thinking about their own health, but how their health and how their health behaviors impact their communities. It was just a powerful reminder that oftentimes we are limiting ourselves because we're not taking into account the myriad of perspectives that are represented by the diversity of our cultures, and that diversity is also represented by age. So if you were to have a youth talking session, as the presenters in this session put it, there's ways to honor youth voice with action. And they actually went through a formal structure that you could use if you wanted to do this in a community health setting, if you wanted to do it as part of a, a, a tribal health initiative, if you're doing it in a tribal community center in an urban area, some just really great ideas. Well, those were some of the high points from the American Public Health Association meetings that I had the privilege of attending on the first full day of meetings on Sunday. But I wanted to just give you a little bit uh, more exposure to some of the type of things that we heard as we went throughout the programs. And I wanted to share with you something that I think is especially interesting. It is a, a topic that on the surface sounds really encouraging, but is actually really sobering. And I'm thankful for Savannah Carson and Kimberly Martinez for putting together a presentation at APHA entitled Empowering Our Community Against Gentrification. Now, for a lot of you, you probably have not heard that term, gentrification. I'm going to talk with you just a bit about what it is and why it's important, as uh, pointed out by these two presenters. Just let me give, set it in the context of APHA just a little bit better. So the American Public Health Association, as they gather for these, these meetings, and I, I mentioned to you some 9,000 individuals gathered virtually in 2020, what happens is, in addition to having large general sessions that may be the only thing happening in the meeting where thousands of people will attend either in a, a live venue or as it was in 2020 virtually, they have many small breakout sessions. And there might be 30, 40, 50 or more breakout sessions happening simultaneously. So these are smaller group sessions, maybe a dozen people, maybe 50, maybe 100, just depending on the topic. And one of them was dealing with this topic, one of the presentations. The presentations are usually short. There's usually several of them in an hour and a half session. So I would imagine Savannah and Kimberly, the individuals who pulled together this uh, presentation, probably had all of 10 minutes to share their insights. But let me just talk with you about this concept of gentrification. And you could look on the Centers for Disease Control website, or you can look online for a definition. But let me give you a definition from the CDC. What is gentrification? It's often defined as the transformation of neighborhoods from low value to high value, adding new stores and resources in previously run-down neighborhoods. Now, when you first hear something like this, you say, great. I mean, this is improving the standard of living, cleaning up maybe some run-down buildings, putting in some new beautiful things into a city or an urban area, gentrification on the surface, if you don't understand all its implications, sounds really 
great. But here's the problem. When you have a change like that in a community, a lower income community, it has the potential to cause displacement of longtime residents and businesses. And I'm largely reading from the CDC as they speak about this, because what happens is those longtime, those original neighborhood residents find things changing as property values start to go up because there's now these nice stores. There's maybe uh, an old warehouse that was turned into high-end condominiums. What's happening? The prices are going up in the food stores. The rent prices are going up. Property taxes are rising. You get the picture. So what happens in gentrification is it can begin to affect housing, economic factors, health factors. It can start to change the composition of a community. This may have been where you grew up. Your your parents maybe live in this community. They have limited means. And now as they're tearing down other homes like your parents to put in big, expensive dwellings, the property taxes are surging. And your parents, perhaps, find that they're being forced to move. They can't keep up with just the tax payments. And what happens is this erodes the community's history, it erodes their culture, decreases what we call social capital. So you say, well, what can you do about it? Isn't this good to to bring new stores and resources to previously run-down neighborhoods? Well, there can be good sides to it, but public health helps to look at the broad picture and how it impacts the whole community. And these two ladies shared some compelling stories of individuals who really had challenges as a result of changes in their community. You say, well, that's kind of a strange note to end a radio show on. Well, I ended on that note to tell you this. Public health, if you haven't picked up on it in today's program, is a much broader field than many people appreciate. And the better you understand public health and all the different social determinants, commercial determinants of public health, the better you can enjoy health yourself, can help the health of your family, your community, your tribe. We're hoping to have more presentations based on my contacts that I made in the virtual APHA 2020 on future editions of this broadcast. Keep your ears open because I look forward to having some great guests that I met at APHA 2020. Hopefully, this show has again helped you to reconnect with things that can make a difference as far as your health. For all of us, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.